Thanks. Let's turn to the New Testament and the book of Colossians, subject of angelology, study of angels. Ology just means study, and angels mean angels. So the study of angels. Again, uh, we but barely broke into the subject this morning when it comes to the subject of demonology and angelology, the spirit world, as has been said. Much more that we could say, much more the scripture has to say. And if you understand it right, there's much the scripture doesn't say. There's a lot of speculation into these areas, and one of the things that was, I think, helpful in the more involved study that we had yesterday uh, on Saturday was the ability to address some of these things that are simply speculative but do not have, uh, thank you, Bob, scriptural support. One of the problems in Colossae, and there's a little bit of debate about it or a lot of debate perhaps about, about it, is um, what it is exactly that the letter to the Colossians was written for, the purpose for which it's written. I don't mean the theme of the letter that's very clear, but the particular problem that was at Colossae. It's evident from history that eventually there there came to be a full-blown heresy labeled Gnosticism, whether that was developed at that point in Colossae or not is the question. Um, the letter certainly will address that, as often the scripture do, uh, you'll find. It addresses one problem that occurred in the early church, and by dealing with things that happened then, those principles were able to extract and deal with things that come down the line. There's nothing new under the sun, really. It comes under different dress, different clothes, different garb, but the same error that existed then come again in different forms. But whether or not Gnosticism, as it came to be known, was fully developed uh, by the time that Paul wrote to the Colossians, the things that were inherent in Gnosticism, the basic uh, essential errors that made up that false heretical system, would certainly be uh, attacked and dismantled by what the Spirit of God presents in the book of Colossians. Gnosticism is a word that comes from the word Gnostic, G-N-O-S-T-I-C. And as I've mentioned here before, as I'm sure most of you already know, if you put an A in front of a word, oftentimes what it does is negate that word. So if you put an A in front of Gnostic, you have the word agnostic. An agnostic is a person who claims you cannot know. May be a God, may not be a God. You can't know for sure if there is one. So on the other hand, a Gnostic is a person who says you can know. It's a word that has to do with knowledge. It's translated knowledge or uh, translated uh, knowledge as we find it in Colossians 1.9, for instance, where it talks about being filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding and so on. So the Gnostics were people who claimed you could know, but further than that, what they claimed was that, well, at least they could know. And if you got in on the certain secret club, so to speak, you'd get in on this inner knowledge as well, and you'd be able to know. So it was sort of an exclusive cult, if you will, that you had to be initiated into. And once you passed through the initiation phase, whatever that was, you sort of were given the special keys to this insider knowledge that allowed you to intrude into the spirit realm. And the Gnostics believed that through this knowledge, you could then make sort of a, a progress into that spiritual realm. It had a lot of other connected heresies that were with it. It's branched off into various phases of different forms of Gnosticism eventually, but there was this plethora or this uh, sort of ranking of spirit beings of which they placed the Christ very high on the list but not giving him the place 
that God gives him, that the scripture gives him, as all the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in him bodily. Because the Gnostics claimed that whatever the Christ was, it was that spirit that came upon people, sort of. It wasn't uh, something that was a physical, tangible thing. At least one branch of it held that, 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 that this belief that there was the, all these spirits and that the body was bad and so on. But be that as it may, they had this whole range of spirit beings that they uh, sort of graduated with, with a ladder. That's a lot of what was involved. It, it sounded very spiritual. It had a very spiritual uh, feel to it, tone to it, mystical, uh, getting into things that only the select initiated few could know by means of special knowledge and uh, certain select wisdom. And so what a frontal blow it was, what a smashing blow it was, when through the Spirit of God, Paul writes that every believer would increase in the knowledge of God, and that according to chapter 1 and verse 19, it pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell, and that we could have this wisdom, the Sophia, the wisdom of God, as well as the knowledge of God, that in Christ, according to chapter 2 and verse 3, were hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and that he was not high on the list of created things, according to chapter 1 and verse 16, but that all things were created by him, whether they be things that are in the earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created by him, and all things were created for him, and he is before all things, of which the implication is clear. If he is before all things, if he existed before all things were created, then he himself is uncreated. And if he's uncreated, well, then he's deity. And if he created all things, therefore he is himself uncreated being. And he's not just one in the ladder of successive spiritual beings. He's over them. They were created for him. He is before them. And the fullness of the Father dwelt in him, a hundred percent deity. And so he goes on to warn them in chapter 2, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy, verse 8, and vain deceit. He says in verse 18 of chapter 2, Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility. That is a self-abasement that often came with these cultic practices, abasing the body or abusing the body even, even in an attempt to be humble. And a worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen and vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, thinking because he has somehow had this insider knowledge or this super spiritual experience that he is at an advanced level which puffs up his mind fleshly in a fleshly way and he's intruding into those things which he has not seen which involved also the worshiping of angels there is a unique inquisitiveness into the spiritual realm that exists today uh, one of the most powerful people I don't know whether we could say in all the world, maybe we could, certainly in the United States, powerful by way of influence, powerful by way of monetary position and fame, is Oprah. And on uh, XM and satellite radio, Sirius, XM Sirius Now Radio, you know, she started a, a separate whole channel to do with spiritual things, spirituality, a whole series of talks involving wide range of spiritual things and I can promise you it's anything but consistent with the revelation of God's word and it's anything but consistent with an appreciation and a right 
view of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a great interest into those kind of things, a great amount of speculation and a great desire to intrude into those things or to to get into that realm of spiritual things. And here's the thing about it. I mentioned this this morning. You could write a book on angels, it'd probably be a bestseller. You could write a book on demons, it'd probably be a a bestseller. You could make a movie about angels and demons and probably be guaranteed big box office. But what about a book about Christ? What about one, a movie, if you could, I find it would be very difficult, biblically presenting accurately the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. What about a book about that? How many people would line up for that? And yet that's what the word of God brings before us, doesn't it? That's what is the privilege of every believer in Christ. Yes, we can find what the scripture has to say about angels and what it has to say about demons, but the antidote to much of the error that abounds is the focus and the attention and the the getting into, if you will, the riches of the treasures that God has stored up in the Lord Jesus Christ, the inexhaustible wealth that's found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody once said, listen, if you ever are looking for something to preach and you don't know what to preach, preach Christ. (laughs) Amen? Because if you preach Christ, you'll never lack for material. (laughs) And if you preach Christ, the people of God are going to be blessed by it. And if you preach Christ, sinners are going to find a Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. Preach Christ. You can't do better than that, really, can you? Preach Christ. Often, just by way of personal You know, experience. I find myself sometimes going somewhere where I haven't been before, don't know the assembly, don't know what the needs are, don't know what's going on with the people. What am I going to (laughs) preach? I'm going to preach Christ. I'll resort back to there. Not like it's something you got to fall back on, like there's nothing else. But what I mean is, you, you can't go wrong there, can you? One of the beauties is God has designed the assembly, scripturally, is that the assembly is designed to not glory in men. It's a problem the Corinthians has, wasn't it? That the assembly is designed that Christ might be exalted, that Christ might be magnified, that the focus of the assembly would not be on a man or on a human leader, but that the, that the focus of the assembly as God has designed would be Christ, that he might be before our hearts, that we might be before him in dependence, that as we come together as an assembly to remember him, it's Christ who is the focus and Christ who is the thrust and Christ who is the theme because we need Christ in his fullness and all that he is in his person and his work constantly to be before us. Individually, corporately, we need that dependence upon him, that looking to the head, that holding fast the head, as it says in verse 19 of Colossians chapter 2. Now, here's what I find interesting. While there is a great degree of speculation about that which we do not know, what we need is more inspection of that which we do know. And while there's a great degree of speculation about angelic hosts and beings and things like that because we're not given, you know, full, absolute knowledge on these things in in all areas, there's many questions as we had even yesterday in our study, I find it interesting that, you know, we're not the only ones who are inquisitive. And this is an interesting thing to think about, perhaps, in this area of angelology, that the angels are inquisitive, that while we would like to look into some of those things, they also would like to look into certain things and do look into certain things. Isn't that an interesting thing? Look at Peter, First Peter, in chapter 1. 
First Peter in chapter 1. The prophets prophesied of the grace that would come unto us in verse 10. They searched their own writings, searching diligently. In verse 11, what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us did they minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. The angels desire to look into these things. The gospel which was preached with the Holy Ghost who was sent down from heaven, and the angels are desirous to look into these things. Now that's an interesting phrase there in 1 Peter 1.12. You remember the gospel accounts when, the, when John and Peter ran towards the tomb. It's been suggested that John was the younger man, so he got there first, and maybe that's so. But Peter, stooping down, looked in. I think it was Peter. It was one of the two. <laughs> Stooping down, he looked into the, into the tomb, into the cave where the body of the Lord had lain. That's the word that's used here. It's to look to see, you know, what's in there. One of them did. Find it, Tim. Let me know. Get, dig me out, brother, before the hole gets any deeper. <laughs> Peter ran in. Yeah, ran ahead, right? Who stooped down? Yes, and looked looked in. Correct. Got it. Good enough for me. But the point is that angels are desirous to look into this thing of salvation. Now think about that for a moment because, you know, we think, man, to be an angel, as we've seen revealed in Scripture, have the ability to not be limited by spatial things such as... Uh, buildings or even time in a sense or distance to be able to transcend those limitations that we have as earthbound beings to be able to enter into the celestial realm that they do and even into the presence of God what what would that be like you know to see the very uh, third heaven the place where God dwells but you know what they're most curious about this thing of the gospel that was preached unto you, that these human beings who were once rebels, who have now, these human beings who rebelled against God and turned against the Creator and didn't serve His will like His ministers, the angels, do, who now have heard this message preached in the power of the Holy Spirit and who have turned to God and bow now to that creator this whole scope of redemption. Because they're not redeemed like we are. And one of the truths about angels is that we stated yesterday that apparently as we read scripture that there were those angels that were confirmed in the state of holiness that they're in now. And those other angels that fell that have now been confirmed in that fallen state. And n neither of the two are created as man, as a tripart being with body, soul, and spirit to be redeemed by God and by the blood of Christ. And they want to look into that. Now what a twist is that? People are dying to look into the angelic realm and to get into all these speculative things. And the angels are like, I'd like to know a little bit about salvation. An area in which we can delve into as much as we want. Not only delve into in a... In a in an academic way, but something if we're saved we know experientially. Something that the angels do not know and can never experience the salvation of God. The angels desire to look into those things. And that's not all. We find in Ephesians, in chapter 3, as we mentioned, Ephesians in chapter 3, There have been great mysteries that have been revealed. Mysteries that were hidden in God. 
and by mystery, it wasn't something spooky or weird. It was something that God kept hidden until the time that he chose to reveal it. And uh, Peter came first to the sepulcher, and he's stooping down looking in. John, nine, uh, John 20, 5. I feel better. I don't want to be inaccurate with the Word of God, you know, and I, I sometimes get folks mixed up. I don't know if you do that. Peter, James, both, or John both there, which one was what, but anyway. Um, in Ephesians chapter 3, these mysteries, in verse 9, of which Paul was made a minister and given grace so he could make the Gentiles even experience the unsearchable riches of Christ. And as he says in verse 9 of chapter 3, to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hidden in God, God had a secret. In that sense, it's something he hid, didn't reveal. Now he has, uh, who created all things by Jesus Christ to the intent for this purpose, that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, that they might realize in that uh, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, that the principalities and powers and it doesn't just specifically here say angels. It may well be all of the principalities and powers. As they observe the church, the church is the university that teaches the principalities and powers, that they are learning something by us, that what God is doing is making known to them his manifold wisdom. Isn't that something? The angels desire to look into this thing of salvation, which we have experienced and they can't. The angels look at the church and realize the manifold wisdom of God. He teaches them that through the church. And then you find in 1 Corinthians and chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Not only are the angels interested in salvation and redemption and what that's all about, they learn the wisdom of God through the church. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 10, For this cause ought the woman to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Because of the angels. Now, why is that verse there? I mean, I ask myself that question from time to time when I come to a verse like that. Because what do the angels have to do with anything? Well, you note the immediate context has to do with the creation order. One thing, as we said and noted, and I know you already know, but I remind myself even, this removes the subject of the symbolic display of headship in the church completely out of the realm of the cultural. The angels have nothing to do with anything cultural. If I only had that one verse to go on, in this passage, that would settle it for me. The symbolic display of the, of the truth of headship through the uncovered head of the man and the covered head of the woman. Now, what I illustrate that by yesterday and what I probably have shown here before, but I do again, what do the angels learn through this? And, and by the way, ladies and men, I've often said, we use 1 Corinthians 11 sometimes to preach to women, rightfully so. There's just as many verses here that have to do with men. Count them up sometimes. See how many times men are mentioned, how many times women are mentioned. There's a message here to men. Because the truth is bigger than just head covering. It's a truth of headship. But having said that, the order of creation, the order of creation, what happened after the creation of the man and woman was that things got out of order. And they got out of order because sin entered in. The woman exercised a place of headship that she should not have done. The man failed to take his headship as he should have done. Everything got turned upside down, so to speak, topsy-turvy. The woman, watch this, 
She physically stepped out from under her headship. What happens now is through salvation, the woman, by covering herself, places herself under, symbolically, that headship. In other words, it is a statement to the angels that are observing the church, according to Ephesians 3, that through redemption, God is restoring that which had gotten out of order. That the world may be gone crazy and out of order, but there's a place on earth where God's order is recognized. And where God's truth is communicated symbolically so that the man uncovers his head and takes that place as God's representative of Christ and the woman covers and places herself under that authority and it's a picture, a symbolic picture that the angels learn from. you got an opportunity, men and women gathered together as a church to teach the angels something and show them God's order. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Not only that, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us something else. That while man was created a little lower than the angels, it says in chapter 6 this, in talking to the Corinthians about something as basic as uh, earthly, if you will, as having legal matters against one another. Dare any of you having a matter against another, speaking to believers now, go to law before the unjust. Now, you can't turn that on its head. When he says going to law before the unjust, it doesn't mean that we can never go to law before the unjust in the sense that um, there are still crimes that God has ordained to be punished by law, by the unjust. But when it comes to matters one with another, and that before the unjust, he brings out two things. And I want you to think not only of what he brings out, I want you to think of who he brings it out to, the Corinthians. He says to the Corinthians, Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world, and the world shall be judged by you? If it shall be, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? On the scale of things, these matters are exceedingly small. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? Now, what does that mean? Have you ever thought about the implications of that? That those angelic beings that sometimes are exalted beyond what they should be in people's thinking, certainly they are high created powers by God, certainly they have enormous incredible abilities that exceed what humankind can do right now, and yet in God's design, ultimately, we who are believers in Christ, we're going to judge angels? We're going to judge angels? We're going to rule over angels. How will we ever have the capability, the experience to render proper judgment upon such angelic and spiritual beings? Well, it begins right here in life, doesn't it? By judging what he calls the smallest matters. It begins in how we deal with one another in the body of Christ, in the family of God, in the house of God, in our relationships one with another. God is using these things to develop us. It begins with life's experiences. In the life of those of us who are saved, training us to one day reign with Christ, to develop us to the point through all of life's experiences that we can one day be given spheres of authority in which to rule and levels of responsibility that will include judging the angels. (laughs) It is incredible when you think about it. What God has planned for us, it's big. I'm telling you, it's huge. It's no little thing. And so oftentimes our thoughts about life and life in the assembly and 
life with one another and even how we treat other believers and how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ. We take it so lightly. We don't understand the implications of what God is doing. We don't understand the staggering, enormous future that God has for us as believers. And that through all the experiences of this life and of our life in the assembly and all the hardships and difficulties and heartaches and heartbreaks and joys and frustrations and aggravations and the long-suffering that God is developing something, doing something that will enable us one day to judge angels. I don't would not stand before you this evening and in any way profess to completely understand it, but it's certainly staggering, isn't it, when we begin to think about it, the future that God has planned for us. And so that's something of what the New Testament has to say about the subject of angels, and obviously there's much more. I want to turn now to the Old Testament just for a moment. Now, I asked a question because I wasn't certain earlier to some, and I got the answer. And that word was the first mention of the word angel in the Old Testament. I thought I knew where it was, and it was, it's found in Genesis chapter 16. There's one distinction that we didn't make much. It's often a matter of confusion to many folks. I find it somewhat uh, difficult at times to ascertain correctly uh, which is which in Old Testament particularly. And that is the subject of the angel of the Lord. There are times when there are the appearances of just those who are angels. There are other times when there's the appearance of the angel of the Lord. And there are other times when there's appearance of an angel that turns out to be the angel of the Lord. But by everything I read in scripture, the angel, the angel of the Lord, almost always, almost exclusively, is not just an angel because often you'll have the attributes of deity recognized in the angel of the Lord. And while the scripture doesn't specifically, explicitly say it, it seems to best fit what scripture does say that when we see the angel of the Lord revealed in Old Testament, that it most likely was what we would call a, some would call it a theophany, which is an appearance of God. Some would call it a Christophany, which may not be absolutely accurate since the Christ did not come until he came in a body of flesh. But it may be more accurate to think of it as a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And uh, often, as you know in Scripture, when we talk about what we call the law of first mention or first reference, we find uh, a peculiar significance attached to something the first time it's mentioned that helps us to define it in other portions of Scripture. And so in, in Genesis 16, you have the first mention of the angel of the Lord. It's found in verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her. Now, the story is about Abram and Sarai. And you remember that Sarai uh, could not have children, and Abraham was uh, up there in age himself. And uh, so they came up with a plan. The plan was to take an Egyptian handmaid, a servant girl, named Hagar. And according to the custom of the time, Sarah uh, suggested to Abram that they would take Hagar, and Hagar would hopefully conceive, and when she would conceive, uh, they, they would help God out. You know, God needed a little help. This thing was going on too long, and this thing about waiting on the Lord now for, you know, 16 years or whatever it was, uh, all these years. Um, Abraham's now, I think, 85 at this stage. It's been 10 years since chapter 12, and he's been waiting an awful long time for this promise. He's not getting any younger. Sarah's no spring chicken. And so um, uh, they decide, you know, well, maybe God intended for us to help him with this thing. And so they decide that this is the way they'll do it. They'll take, they'll take Hagar, and she'll go into Abraham, have relations with him. And that's what happened. And she conceived. And when she did, she was despised in the eyes of Sarai. And so Sarai said, 
Uh, Abram said to Sarai in verse 6, Behold, the maid is in thy hand. Do to her as it pleaseth thee. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her face. And she fled out into the wilderness, into the desert, in the fountain, by the fountain, in the way to the place called Shur. And it says in verse 7, The angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, whence comest thou, and whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress, and submit thyself under her hands. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. And he will be a wild man, his hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. She called the name of the Lord that spake unto her. Notice that. The Lord that spake unto her. Thou, God, seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? Wherefore the well was called Beer Lahiroi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. The first mention of the angel of the Lord and how significant it is. The first mention of the angel of the Lord who appears not to Abraham, the mighty patriarch, not to Abram, the father of the faith, not to Abram, the one to whom all the promises were made, but to a runaway Egyptian outcast slave girl to reveal himself to her as the one who saw her and the one who would look after her at the well, at the place of the fountain of water in a wilderness. How significant is that when we begin to think about it? Not to a person who was running looking for God, but a person who was running away. And the Lord found her there in the wilderness. You know, um, when we think about this, when we think about this mention of the angel of the Lord, I find it significant that when he comes to Hagar in verse 8, he asks her two questions. Where did you come from? Where are you going? It's a question of origin. It's a question of destiny. Do you know that there are questions that the scientific world cannot answer? They ultimately cannot answer. They can speculate. The question of origin. It's one of the great questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? What is my purpose? And what is my destiny? And two of those great four philosophical questions are asked here by the angel of the Lord to the runaway slave girl, Hagar. Where did you come from? Where are you going? Those can never be answered by science, by education, by man's intuition. They can only be answered by revelation. But they're probing questions, aren't they? And he finds her there, and he makes to her great promises. And he tells her of how he will bless her, that the Lord has heard her cry and her affliction and looked upon her, and that was her experience. And she named the well that. This is the well of the Lord who looked after me in my affliction and heard my cry and did something about it. What a revelation in that first experience of the angel of the Lord. If the angel of the Lord is that second person of the Trinity, 
the Son of God pre-incarnate before he came in a body of flesh, how significant is how that first revelation of him occurs and who that vision is given to. I want to turn to one other one, if you would, and then we'll close. It's found in the book of First Kings, and it's one that has appealed to me particularly lately. First Kings and chapter 19. First Kings chapter 19 finds Elijah as he's fleeing from Jezebel. If you remember the history, in chapter 18, he had experienced a tremendous, uh, miraculous uh, experience of God as God had answered by fire on Mount Carmel to prove who was the true and the living God. They had taken the false prophets of Baal and brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. As Elijah had promised, the rain that he had caused to stop by his prayer to the Lord would now begin. He announced it to Ahab. Jezebel was committed to killing Elijah with the sword. And the man who stood in the face of Ahab and ultimately announced his death sentence fearlessly in the face of a king, now flees from the wrath of a woman. And he runs for his life. Now, in verse 46, the hand of the Lord was on, this is in chapter 18, on Elijah, he girded up his loins, he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel, which is about 45 miles. So keep that in mind. Jezebel says, I'm going to kill him. And in verse 3, when he saw that of chapter 19, he arose, went for his life, came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah. Now, he not only got out of Dodge, he crossed the border because Elijah was a prophet in the north to the northern kingdoms of Israel. At that time, the nation was split. So he flees all the way out of the north to Beersheba, which belonged to Judah, which is about 100 miles. He left his servant there, and then in verse 4, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, a day's journey, probably about 20 miles. And he sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die. Here is one of the greatest prophets of God. He's just been used of God. He's just prayed this way. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God. And that thou hast turned their heart back again. And the fire of the Lord fell from heaven. Consumed the sacrifice, the water, the rocks, the whole thing. And now he prays that he might die. You know, sometimes people that experience the height of certain flames, particularly people who are given to emotion and passion and that kind of thing, and and can get up here, as high as they get up here, they can get as low down here. It's enough now, Lord. Take away my life. Here's a man who felt, I believe, his service had been unproductive. He had not seen the nation turn to God like he had hoped. Am I better than my father's? And he lay and he slept under a juniper tree. Not a bad thing to do when you've run, you know, about 165 miles. You might not be surprised that he lay down and slept. <laughs> you might also extract from this passage that it's not always the best idea when you're exhausted to make important decisions like whether you live or die. 
<laughs> Better wait till you've had a little rest. <laughs> but um, what I find interesting is that there is this connection that I don't have a full grasp on or a full, uh, you know, handle on, certainly, between the spiritual and the physical. Those things are very closely connected in human life. And here's a man who goes through what appears to be what we would define as serious depression, dejection. And as he slept under a juniper tree, behold, an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. Not a bad idea if you've run 165 miles and been exhausted to get some food. Pretty basic, huh? Angel could have done, you know, whatever, you know. Nope. Cooked him a meal. There was a cake baked on coals. Angel food cake, no doubt. And a cruise of water uh, at his head. And you know what he did? He ate and he drank. And then you know what he did? What do you do? <laughs> he slept. <laughs> you just been 165 miles, and you eat, and you drink, and you sleep. And he did again sleep. And the angel of the Lord, notice, came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. The journey's too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat 40 days and 40 nights unto whore of the Mount of God. Now, that must have been some kind of... You know, angel food bread there. But what I find about this passage that is interesting, if you'll notice that there are almost all of the senses involved, the physical senses involved with Elijah. The angel touched him. He heard the voice. There was speak, speech. He looked. He smelled. He tasted the physical. There's an importance there, isn't there? But even more than that, the experience of Elijah thus far, he'd been fed by special delivery, hadn't he? Ravens, who are scavengers, who will eat anything, brought him bread, and meat, special delivery, every day. And God, uh, there was water there in the brook for him. And then when that ran dry, he went to a widow. And the widow ministered to him. But now, in the time of his own deepest state, of depression, dejection. It's the Lord himself who ministers to him. <laughs> it's the Lord himself who comes and ministers to him in that time. Isn't that something? The God of heaven would have such an interest that the God of heaven would take a man who had just seen experience of God like few of us maybe will ever see. And who then would turn and say, just kill me, Lord, and take my life. And the God of heaven be so interested with that individual and with his physical state. That he didn't preach him a great sermon. He cooked him a great meal. <laughs> and gave him water. And touched him. That God would have that kind of interest in us. The God of heaven. Isn't that a wonderful thing to think about? Old Testament, certainly. Angel of the Lord in that stage. Would we think that the God of heaven is any less interested in us today who are the heirs of salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus? What a God. God that runs this great big universe. The God that keeps all of this in order. Would see a runaway Egyptian slave girl running in the wilderness and come down and reveal himself to her. Would see a prophet 
in his time of deep despair and come down and give him exactly what he needs, physical and spiritual. Would see us wherever we are in life, with whatever we're going through. What, what a revelation of the character of God. May the Lord help us and encourage us through these thoughts from his word. Let's look to him. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his interest and care for us. Lord, we wonder about Elijah running so far in the wilderness and thinking what all went through his mind and getting to that place in life where he could even say, just take my life, it's better that I die. And Father, perhaps some of us have been there, such a hard place, difficult spot of life, heavy things that weigh on us. We thank you for your care for us. We think in the New Testament, as the Lord Jesus stood upon this planet, looked at his disciples as he was leaving this world and said, I will not leave you like orphans. I will not abandon you to your own resources. I will send the Spirit of God, another comforter, to come and put his arm around you, to sustain you, to walk beside you, to uphold you, to lift you up and encourage you. Father, if Old Testament revelation tells us of your concern and care for those that we see here, for those that were unsaved, and those that were your people, certainly in New Testament, in this church age in which we live, Though your care for us might be uniquely different, it could be none, none less. We thank you for it. May it encourage our hearts in these difficult times in which we live. We give you thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.